Welcome, everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this morning uh, to the Cato Institute um, for our event on the future of GOP foreign policy. Um, thanks to those who are here in person. Thanks to those who are watching online or on C-SPAN. Um, and as always, I'd like to thank the tech folks who, by the grace of God, managed to make all of this happen, um, and the conference folks who make sure that I show up where I'm supposed to be uh, at any given time. For people who are watching online and have questions uh, that they want to pose to our panelists, you can use the hashtag CatoFP um, to ask a question on Twitter or Facebook or wherever the case may be. Um, so I'll set things up today. I mean, it's no great mystery what we're here to talk about. Um, but I'll, I'll just set it up by saying that uh, you know we have the GOP in the midst of a really meaningful debate on foreign policy. As the preeminent global power, um, it has some luxury of choice. It can choose more, it can choose less foreign policy, it can choose more foreign policy in one place and less in another place. So there's a lot of room to run in terms of choice. And you can index the debate by looking at, for example, two leading presidential candidates who represent two factions within the GOP foreign policy debate. Um, one says the United States is overemphasizing Europe, um, letting Europeans live off of U.S. defense exertions when they can and should be doing more for themselves. Um, that side frequently gets called isolationist, which is an ugly word. Um, but in fact, that side of the debate argues that the monomania for focusing on Europe comes at the expense of other U.S. interests that may in fact be more important, such as the U.S. position vis-a-vis -vis Asia. The other side of the debate says that as goes Europe, so goes the world. Everything is connected to everything else, so without U.S. leadership, the global order would collapse. I refer, of course, to the presidential election of 1952. So there are some echoes of the debate that took place during that presidential election in the contemporary GOP. And I think we will do our best to kind of pull at some of the similarities and distinctions between these two moments in time. There are echoes of that past debate um, into today, but I think there are a number of different ways of getting at the problem. If you look at the faction that says uh, the United States needs to play the leading role in European security, those tend to, there tends to be a generational split on that question. If you look at the people who are calling for a fundamental reorientation in the Senate, for example, you're going to see people like um, J.D. Vance, like Josh Hawley, like Rand Paul. And if you look at the people who have the sort of more uh, grand vision of U.S. providing order in the world, um, Liz Cheney was primaried, uh, Mitt Romney is retiring, and uh, the majority leader, uh, or Mitch McConnell, is 81. So I think there is a generational divide there that we may want to talk about. Institutions are changing. The Weekly Standard is no more, and the American conservative uh, has a larger role to play in the party than it has historically. Um, and, and we have Victoria Coates here from the Heritage Foundation, and I think the Heritage Foundation is worth talking about um, at some length. Always. Always, always, but especially today. Um, and the president of Heritage recently said, quote, Heritage is moving toward an explicit embrace of restraint. Uh, the hawkish columnist that wrote this got the vapors a little bit about that uh, quote, um, but it's there. And in an article surrounding the Ukraine debate in particular titled Republicans Plot Foreign Intervention Pullback, 
the president of Heritage said that uh, rank-and-file donors at Heritage have generally come down firmly on the restraint side of the foreign policy fight. So both as a scholar and selfishly, uh, this is a very interesting moment. Uh, to be working on restraint uh, in U.S. foreign policy. And we have two very distinguished scholars here to talk about both the sort of nuts and bolts of the debate as it is happening today and the broader context in which that debate is happening. Um, the first presenter this morning will be Victoria Coates, who's the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Um, previously, she served as National Security Advisor to DOE Secretary Dan Briette in 2020. Um, she had, in 2016, joined President Donald Trump's administration as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Strategic Communications. In 19, she was promoted to Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for the Middle East and for North Africa, which will again be relevant to our discussion today. Um, previously, she had served as former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld's Director of Research for his personal office. And in 2013, she served as a national, senior national security advisor to Senator Ted Cruz. She has a bachelor's degree in art history from Trinity College, a master's degree in art history from Williams College, and a PhD from Penn. So please don't ask me any questions about art today because I will embarrass myself uh, in front of uh, uh, Dr. Coates. I would be happy to talk about the William Penn statue. Oh, I've already, up. yes, that just, it's just come up, the Penn statue. Yes, maybe we can avoid that, hopefully. <laughs> We also have Brandon Buck here today, who's a PhD candidate in history at George Mason University. Previously, he worked as an intelligence and geospatial analyst with NGIS, NGIA, sorry. NGA. NGA. Oh, got it. a hyphen in there. I, the hyphen, got <laughs> yeah. it. Um, he also served in the U.S. Army and Virginia Army National Guard, completing multiple tours to Afghanistan. His research interests, which again are germane to our discussion today, include 20th century U.S. military, diplomatic, and political history, U.S.-Afghan relations, and the managerial state, which is setting off the libertarian sirens uh, in me and other people <laughs> here in the room. His current research focuses on the domestic politics of U.S. foreign policy from 1934 through 1992 again, germane to our discussion today, and the evolution of foreign policy attitudes within the Republican Party. His work has appeared in numerous outlets, including Responsible Statecraft, the Libertarian Institute, and Antiwar.com. He earned a Bachelor of Arts in History from the University of Denver and a Master of Arts in History from George Mason in 2016. So with that, I think, Victoria, if you wanted to, to, to set the table for us a little bit today and uh, tell us where you see things going. Sure. Well, thank you very much for that, that kind introduction. It's good to be with both of you, I think. And I, again, appreciate everyone coming in person and, and joining us online and on C-SPAN uh, for this very timely discussion of obviously a topic that has been seizing us at, at the Heritage Institute, Foundation, rather, particularly in the Davis Institute. But, you know, I, this is a sort of a conversation that I've been having in different iterations really from 2007 on. Uh, and I think what we've seen between you know, the conclusion of the second Bush term and what we're going into here in 2024 has been a really radical shift in the way national security is policy is, is designed and, and executed. And we've had kind of a remarkable series of different almost screenshots within that period of time. We've got the Obama two terms and the record that came out of that. We have the Trump term. 
we have, again, a very distinctive uh, record, and then we are now getting a full picture of what, what the Biden administration foreign policy uh, has, has wrought on, on the world. And, you know, I think Brandon will go into the historical sort of roots of all of this, but, you know, there really has been a shift from that much more traditional hawkish uh, Republican foreign policy to what I would refer to as a conservative national security policy. And the way I've conceived of this in my brain, because I'm visual, is that you know, we're not hawks, we're not doves, we're owls. Uh, that I would reject that paradigm that you have to either be a interventionist or an isolationist. I don't think that's applicable to the United States in the second quarter of the 21st century. We, we have to be able to do better than just default to one of those two positions. And it really clarified for me in the 2016 Republican primary when you had candidates such as Jeb Bush, obviously very closely associated with his brother's foreign policy, and then you could range to Rand Paul, who obviously was the most formal libertarian, and then Marco Rubio was in that mix as well. Nobody bought either of those polls in the primary. Uh, I think Marco won the Minnesota caucuses, and you know that the two candidates who came in first and second, Trump and Cruz, obviously I'm partial, worked for both of them, so I suppose you could say actually I'm not partial, uh, but they had fundamentally the same approach to international affairs, which is you know for for Trump summed up in America first that you start with the the basic interests of the United States and you build your approach. From there, and you know, we can get into the relative successes or failures of that approach, but it, it's one that was persuasive to the primary voters and then to the general electorate. So, I think that's in many ways where the head of the American people are. So, you know, we can get into various specifics there, but that's kind of where I see things at the moment. That's great. Brandon, give us a little bit of the gloss on history here, how you're connecting the GOP to the GOP of previous eras. So I think it's important to note that uh, I think history shows that the meaning of a conservative foreign policy is not preordained, um, and it could take many forms that might seem strange to us in the present. And I think if you look to the old right, sometimes called the Tafties, as led by you know, uh, Robert A. Taft of Ohio, you know, they were strident anti-communists, but they were also nationalists, and they rejected much of the liberal internationalism that came with the early uh, prosecution of the Cold War. And as such, they advocated for a model for the Cold War that looked much more like Fortress America from the, from the uh, interwar period. And I think that's, it's important to know that you know, th their framework, the way that they saw America and the world, stemmed heavily from a revisionist view of the world wars, uh, particularly for World War II and especially for the, for the manner in which the war ended. Um, but more importantly, they saw the failings of, of American foreign policy of their time as the product of, of American action and not inaction. And that ran completely counter to what was then the emerging liberal consensus that came out of World War II, that it was the absence of American power on the global stage that led to the rise of fascism and therefore the uh, Second World War. But you know, their views became verboten by the, by the mid-50s. Uh, but nevertheless, they, ca they carried them forward. And I, I think that that way of, of viewing the world from a conservative lens, lens was largely lost to us because they, first they lost the political battle, but more importantly, they lost a narrative battle in the mid-50s and then going through uh, into the 60s. And so I think if you look at that history, the, the modern right cynicism and its various flavors towards foreign policy has deeper roots than are, you know, than are commonly appreciated. And I think 
you know, modern Asia firsters or, or more strident non-interventionists, you know, especially if you look at the grassroots, they both use a vernacular to describe American foreign policy that looks more like the mid-30s and, say, the early 1960s. Like, if you look at, at the base, you know, they're, they're using the phrase, you know, the uh, military-industrial complex, which, while it was coined by Eisenhower, it was really kept alive by the new left in the 60s and 70s. And so the 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 window has widened to a place that it hasn't been in decades. So I think if, if we juxtapose you know the history of the old right with the present, you know it, it suggests that conservative opinions on foreign policy are far more elastic than, than they're sort of commonly understood. I also think history shows uh, you know a conservative foreign policy in America emerged from domestic political processes. It's you know was not strictly informed um, by a reaction to, to events overseas, nor inherently in global and its ambitions. And of course, uh, you know, going through some of the history, the old right was first constrained by the primary defeat of Robert Taft and later his death mm-hmm. by cancer in July of 53. And then the remnants of the old right were eventually ground down via attrition uh, th- uh, throughout the uh, 60s. And so again, when you juxtapose that history, I think it shows that the, the prominence of interventionist strains of, of, of conservatism, be it you know, the old guard, unilateralism or Reaganism or uh, neoconservatism, are, are more aberrant than... Uh, Normative. So again, the just generational turnover that we're seeing is not at all uncommon. And uh, that being said, I also think history shows that the, the modern Republican Party is probably going to remain chaotic uh, without a unifying figure. Modest claims to Modest claims. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm a historian, so I want to guard my claims. I don't want to peer over the horizon too much. I mean, without a unifying figure like a Dwight D. Eisenhower and without a unifying narrative of recent foreign policy success like World War II served, um, in, in the previous era, and also without, you know, uh, without a, a foreign threat, and I use the square quotes, um, that can get the party elite and the base together, like communism was during the Cold War, or terrorism was during the global war on terror. And I don't, and I, I, I don't think the, that the, uh, the autocracies versus democracies framework that's coming out of the White House is going to work, especially after 20 years of war and you know, 34 trillion dollars in debt. So, um, but. You know, those are some of the similarities, but I think the differences are important to highlight lest we try to make a model of the past to, uh, to, to predict the future. You know, the old right had a regional basis of support at a time in which American politics was highly sectional. And even though they had ideas that were harkening back to the founding of the country, they had institutions that were built up to oppose American imperialism that started first with the Spanish-American War and then reached, you know, um, reached its height during the wake of the Great War. And so they had a breadth... They had a breadth of uh, voter support, but more importantly, they had a depth of institutional cover, both in business and in media, and, and, but more importantly, uh, in Congress. So they had a confluence of interests that saw an assertive American foreign policy as detrimental to their economic interests, but also to their vision of what America's role in the world should be. But the president, I mean, perhaps you can correct me if, if I'm wrong here, but like, for me, like the, the patterns of dissent are more, they're more decentralized than, than, than they once were. You know, they're even more rural than, than the old right was. Um, and they're dispersed throughout the country, and they're, they're aligned against social class. And there's not like an elite that can lead, um, that can lead these, these ideas in, uh, into politics. And similarly, you know, the, the institutions are, aren't quite there. I know there's been a lot of change since, since 2016, but uh, they certainly aren't as robust as, as they were during the first half of the 20th century. Um, and also, they have a much heavier lift, right? I mean, they're trying to either eradicate or redirect a massive national security and foreign policy apparatus, whereas the old right was simply trying to, to, to slow one down. And I also think that there are 
there are social issues which are tangential to foreign policy which can serve as an impediment to either their success or forming coalitions with you know, their counterparts on the left, particularly issues like immigration and trade. And there's also a general difference um, in how they view sovereignty over versus libertarians or certainly people on the left. So um, whatever comes next will certainly have echoes of the past, but it'll very much be a product of its own time. Great. No, that's very helpful. So one of the things that uh, I let you both know before we went live here that I wanted to talk about, again, partly selfishly, uh, but also from the point of view of a scholar, is this old aph aphorism, personnel is policy. And I think that for my more Trumpy friends and colleagues who say, you know, Trump was in the right place on foreign policy from our point of view, but at crucial junctures was undermined by uh, people who worked in the administration. So we had, for example, um, James Jeffrey say, yes, it was a shell game with the president that we were always hiding the number of troops we had in Syria um, so that he didn't know how many troops we had in Syria. And we, in fact, prevented the president from following through on his pledge to withdraw troops from Syria. But there are, you know, a number, many, many of these instances. And so, again, my Trumpier, more restrainty colleagues will say a second Trump term would be staffed by people who shared the president's vision, which is fill in the blank. Um, and so you would see a more, more follow through and more results. Um, and, and of course, it, you know, the elephant in the room, there is, there is an incipient effort to, to, to do that, right, to connect notional staffers to a notional administration. So is that, maybe Victoria, do you, number one, do you think that there is a point to be made surrounding the personnel having a big impact on how policy is implemented? And secondly, do you think, were we to get a second Trump administration, that things would go differently in some way or other? Well, taking the second question first, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> no matter no matter what happens, it's going it would be different. Uh, and I, I think this is a, a critical question, particularly for any incoming Republican administration, because the fundamental bias of the career bureaucracy in the federal government is liberal. I mean, that's they, just a fact. And amongst that group, there are many patriots who are actually do want to do what's best. For the country, uh, I was actually surprised by how many lasting friendships I forged with these people, and that would, for any incoming uh, administration, be a great a great bonus. Because when we came in uh, with with President Trump, you know, we'd had the eight years of Obama, which had uh, diluted some of those relationships, and then the fact that that had been such an unusual election in terms of everyone assuming that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Uh, and so many of the former Bush administration folks having taken themselves off the table by the various letters and statements that they had made regarding uh, regarding the president. So, so you know, in a way, we came in blind. Also, the you know the president hadn't been president before; he hadn't served in government before, so it was not clear to him. You know, he didn't have a list in his head. This oh, this is my Secretary of State. This is my Secretary of Defense. And you know, I think both of those initial picks were hugely problematic, uh, both the Tillerson and the Mattis pick. I understand the logic behind them, uh, but but they did not work out either in terms of personality uh, or policy implementation. And then I, I would say just from my personal observation, the greatest uh, challenge the president had in this space was actually the national security advisor position 
because you know, General Flynn, who's the one who hired me, was the one the president was deeply comfortable with. Uh, in a way, it's a parallel to uh, Jean Kirkpatrick and Reagan. You know, that she was the one he was comfortable with for various reasons. She did not become national security advisor, and he wound up with kind of a rotating door of folks because he couldn't really get suited. It's such a personal relationship. And, and the president didn't know General McMaster before. He did know John Bolton a little bit, but neither of them were, were close to him, dramatically different. It was interesting to serve under both of them. And then, you know, I think after impeachment, when Robert O'Brien came in, there was very much a feeling of enmity between the president and the NSC. So that relationship never quite worked. And I think what I would advocate for, for whomever becomes, uh, if, if we do have a Republican become president in next November, that the full role of the NSC as the president's mechanism to implement his or her will on this gigantic bureaucracy, as you said, this big apparatus, that has to be reconceived from a conservative viewpoint. The kind of automatic response is to say, oh, make it smaller. Like, and I, I had this conversation repeatedly with Russ Vogt, <laughs> who is not somebody who likes to make things larger. Uh, but that's the budget you should expand, because that is your tool. And the rest of it you can slash, and it's relatively small dollars. You're not talking a lot of money here. Uh, so, so that, I think, is, is the change I would advocate for between a first and second term or between you know, whomever it may be. Brandon, any thoughts on uh, con uh, the notion of a different Republican or a different Trump administration having different uh, connection between the principle and the implementation of the policy? Or I mean, whew, that's a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but I, I mean, <laughs> I think as far as like the menu of options, some sort of retrenchment from Europe is probably like the most plausible and has the most buy-in amongst the, the various factions of of dissent amongst Republicans. And obviously that's gonna run into just an absolute buzzsaw of people who want to maintain the uh, sure. status quo and, and, and whatever look, I mean, there's what, how many active wars are we tangentially or <laughs> directly involved in right now? And then what, what's, gonna look, what's gonna happen after that is gonna, is gonna really be dictated by how the war in Ukraine uh, you know, either grinds to a halt or, or uh, someone winds up in victory. So. Europe is probably the thing that has, you know, the, the most likelihood of having some sort of change. I think a pivot to Asia is probably in the cards. Now, what that actually looks like, right. I, I, I still think is up for grabs. And Victoria, that's a good segue to this notion that I think has become maybe the, but if not the, a centerpiece of this sort of um, conservative critique of, if we want to call it neoconservatism or whatever we care to call it, is this idea of trade-offs, right? I mean, I think my understanding of the conservative critique is, you know, there, there is a real and important challenge to the U.S. position in the world that comes from the People's Republic of China. Um, other foreign policy interests should sort of be subordinated to that, and that there are trade-offs among regions, among functions, maybe even among services of the U.S. military to say, we can't just have more guns and more butter always, forever, uh, in every context. How, how, what is your sense of the extent to which that view of trade-offs, right, of sort of, of a hierarchy of goals, a hierarchy, you know, Brandon talked a little bit about the sort of unifying theme that was the, 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 that personified the Cold War, which was the struggle between more or less liberal capitalism and more or less communism. Um, 
is that is the sort of China uh, focus um, a real driving force, and can it conceivably unify a consensus around a different foreign policy? I, I would say yes, and again, that's a developing uh, a developing theme. You know, I was first introduced to this during the 2012 primary when I was working for then Governor Perry, and I learned to spell the word Huawei, uh, <laughs> which late one night, I'm like, what is that? Uh, and what had happened was George W. Bush had been, you know, very heavily influenced by his father, who had been ambassador to China, among other things, presided over the decision not to push back after Tiananmen Square, uh, and very much felt getting China into the World Trade Organization, engaging China economically was the way to go. So then President Bush had, had suggested to Governor Perry he, he'd reach out to Chinese industry, invite them into Texas, and Huawei made a massive investment in Texas. And by the 2012 primary, though, that was a problem. People were already starting to say, hey, wait, there's something awry here. And it became much more powerful uh, in 2016. And then, you know, when we got in and sort of learned the extent of the problem, you know, if you look at what President Trump said in the primary, he was actually more hostile toward Japan than, than China. But once, this is a little bit of product of the 80s. Uh, but I think, you know, once, once we grasped the scope of what was going on, largely around the 5G issue, uh, you know, it, it became clear. And what is interesting to me and what we're going to be doing a lot of work on this year is the next generation of 5G is actually energy and the so-called green energy uh, that is being promoted by our, our current leadership, uh, which forces a reliance on China. There's no way to do that domestically on the timeline that they've set. So that is going to have to be the trade-off if we decide that's what we want to do. So. You know, these are these are issues of communication and energy that touch every American, and when they see a, a China lens to that, uh, you know, it, it does become a defining issue. Great, Brandon. Anything there? Or? Yeah. So the the issue of trade-offs is is important because that is something that you know that and, you know that's really the essence of conservatism, <laughs> right? This is not, but it's it's it had, this hasn't been on like the uh, on the menu or or, or in the, the forefront. Of American uh, of a conservative foreign policy, you know, really since since Taft, because this was their concern, and it wasn't just trading off, you know, Europe for China, but it was also about trading off American liberties at home right. for you know a, a truly global project, and it was also a concern that by trying to make the world America, America was going to cease to, to be uh, itself. Mm -hmm. So whatever comes next vis-a-vis -vis China, I'll be, I'll be interested to see like how how is. How is the hawkishness or assertiveness, how is it being framed? Is it being framed as a means of containment for our own national self-interest, or will it be portrayed as a means to make China like America, like to continue this universalist project abroad? Because uh, at least I think <laughs> that project in the Middle East failed. Uh, and so if we <laughs> to put it mildly, <laughs> so if we learn anything from the past 20 years, it will be to have, to have a more, you know, have, have a more uh, real politic way of, uh, conducting American policy. So let's get back to Europe, uh, not, to, not in a metaphorical sense, but um, literally. So there was an article in the New York Times in 2018 or 2019 that alleged that uh, President Trump was, was pretty intent on trying or wanted in some meaningful way to get the United States out of NATO. 
And this sent my liberal internationalist friends into a tizzy. They're still kind of in the tizzy. Um, but I think that, you know, Brandon pointed out that, you know, Ukraine and maybe Europe more generally is the um, lowest hanging fruit, I think, for consensus among uh, both conservative grassroots and I think conservative foreign policy elites or people aspiring to the conservative foreign policy elite, where you know there's some consensus on China, that China's a problem, and maybe some dissensus we'll talk about later in the Middle East. Um, but do you see Europe as sort of a, a place where um, there's agreement that you know the United States has kind of been taken for a ride by the Europeans for several decades as you know presidents since Eisenhower have been complaining about um, and is there do you see energy around a fundamentally different approach in Europe and maybe to NATO as an institution in a notional uh, second Trump term? Yeah, actually going putting on my art historian cap, but <laughs> historian cap uh, going back to to Rumsfeld, he was uh, ambassador to NATO in, in 1974, and so I've gone through all of his papers. Uh, so if, if anybody has any questions about the archival issues that have been cropping up with classified documents, I'm your girl. I know <laughs> a ridiculous amount about this. Uh, but he was writing back in 74 to then Secretary Kissinger, this is ridiculous. The Europeans are not paying their bills. They're not investing in their defense. They depend on us for everything. And oh, by the way, we're at war in Vietnam, uh, among other other issues. And so this is not in any way new. I do think this culture of dependence has gone on for far too long. I understand why there is some nervousness in Europe about having a strongly armed Germany. Obviously, if one has historical memory, that hasn't gone terribly well. So you know that. I, I see that, but at the same time, you now have a European collective economy they've decided to form that is roughly the size of the United States. And so, you know, when you have a war in Europe, the last time I looked, why should the United States be the lead donor to that war if, if we decide we're going to co contribute to Ukraine? And I am not a big fan of Vladimir Putin's. I don't particularly want him to win. I'm ready to stop talking about Ukraine. I think it's been a decade now. Uh, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not in favor of just letting it go, but I think, you know, the president through his repeated statements as much as it takes, as long as it takes, you know, is building up that assumption when the president of the United States says that to you, I mean, you are forgiven for believing it, but the problem is that's not in his authority. So he can give as much as the Congress appropriates for as long as they decide to do it. And as presidents before him, I've, I mean, he's coming up against that reality that he did not build a case for this war with the American people, and they are concerned about how it is being prosecuted. In terms of Trump and NATO, you know, when, with the reason I was telling you a little bit about that Liberty Fund event I was at last year is we actually went through all of the documents and speeches around the original decision to join NATO, which was a contentious decision. This was not an automatic thing. I mean, this was not, you know, strewing flowers and throwing candy. It was a big debate for this reason. And, you know, my feeling is... You know, the last time I supported Trump on a uh, NATO summit was the summer of 19. And at the end of that, he and Sultenberg came out. And Sultenberg actually said, we got more done mm -hmm. in this summit than we have in 20 years because you're putting our feet to the fire. So, you know, one can debate the open door NATO policy. Do we want to bring more people in? Has that been successful? But 
an American president who very strongly encourages the Europeans to pay their bills actually can have a very positive uh, effect on NATO. Yeah. Brenda, did you want to... The debate about joining NATO is right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah well, you mentioned that history, and that, that long history has been memory hold, right? Because it's, it's not convenient to, 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 to present a, like a debate that lasted mm -hmm. for many, many decades, and it wasn't at all controversial to hold that opinion in, in the 1990s. But I'll be interested to see if what forces this if what forces this issue is the recruiting crisis. Will there not be enough infantrymen to stand the line uh, in Europe? As right now, I think both the Army and the Navy are about 25 percent short, something like that. So eventually, will there be a material problem that that forces some sort of um, uh, realignment? There is will, will be interesting to see. And I think just that. Just that crisis alone shows that there is a complete lack, well, not a complete lack of faith, but certainly a flagging faith amongst the, the generation of people who have traditionally signed up to go, yeah. you know, do duty in Europe and elsewhere. So. No, I have to I have to harken back to the uh, 1949 Senate hearing where Dean Acheson was asked whether the United States role in NATO and in Europe would involve, quote, substantial numbers of troops over there as a more or less permanent contribution to the development of these countries, Europe's capacity to resist. And Atchison responded indignantly that, quote, the answer to that question, Senator, is a clear and absolute no. And, you know, 70 odd years later, here we are. Um, it's always so, temporary, right? That's right. It's that's a more, uh, permanent nothing more permanent than a temporary <laughs> government program. That's right. I wanted to ask also before we throw it open to questions from the audience, because I think this is a pretty interactive or an event that's inclined to be pretty interactive, um, is a little bit about institutions. So Brandon and I were riffing on the app formerly known as Twitter the other day about uh, Michael Glennon's <laughs> book, uh, National Security and Double Government. And we've talked a little bit about um, institutions that, for example, were uh, president to try to reorient US policy toward Europe. There are 70 years of institutions that would, for not necessarily nefarious reasons, but just institutional interest reasons, be uh, opposed to that or, or, or would make that more difficult, let's say, to take agency out of it. Um, and of course, in the context of President Trump, there's been a discussion about this, this question of Schedule F employees. You mentioned the NSC um, as a place where the president can employ the people the president wants to employ, whereas rooting out the State Department or the Defense Department would be a broader uh, issue. But what about, you know, Glennon sets it up as this sort of Madisonian institutions of government that says we'll have a Congress and a judiciary and a president, and the Congress and the president will get elected, and they'll campaign on the policies that they want to pursue, and then the government will follow the policies of the laws that are enacted by the Congress and, you know, especially in the national security realm, the prerogatives of the president. Now, in response to this claim of, uh, or this suggestion that President Trump used sort of Schedule F to reorient bureaucratic agencies, there's this sense that the bureaucracies don't work for the executive branch, right? There's the sense that the bureaucracies are their own permanent uh, institutions that exist uh, on the basis of what authority is sort of unclear. But at a superficial level, if you work for the executive branch of the government, the person at the top of that executive branch is the president of the United States. And so the policies of the president of the United States ought to be deferred to. But in this Glennon, you know, Madisonian institutions against the Trumanite network, which is the sort of, uh, it really tickles my libertarian nerve, um, <laughs> but the Trumanite network being the bad guy there, what about this? I mean, I was interested in your raising the NSC is a place where the president kind of has plenary authority to say, these are the people I want on my NSC. They work geographically near me. I see them all the time. Um, 
how do you, because there was definitely a tension in the first Trump administration. How, so you mentioned the NSC is one way to build that up. Any take on connecting or detaching that from the Schedule F controversy or anything? Yeah, no, I, I, am, a, I am a fan of the Schedule F. I think that is a, a reform that has been long in the making. And what's interesting is a lot of my friends, some of them very openly liberal Democrats in the career bureaucracy like it. They actually think it's a good idea huh. uh, and that it would give them more uh, latitude. We had a couple of folks in the Trump administration you know, who get detailed over for a period of time to the NSC who actually wound up becoming political appointees, you know, giving up their, their career status because uh, they wanted to stay, stay longer. So you know, I, think, I think that reform is, is deeply necessary in terms of, of what the NSC does. Uh, I think that needs a total overhaul. I mean, we still had an entire directorate that spent most of its time on hurricanes because of Katrina. Now, that was a catastrophic failure uh, and needed to be gotten after, but you do not need a directorate on the NSC at this point to do hurricanes. We, we're good at it now. Uh, so, you know, and a lot of the stuff that just kind of accrued, like barnacles during the uh, global war on terror, you know, that's all still there. Does it need to be there? There are things the NSC does not do, like energy. Uh, the decision was made to disband uh, in 2020, uh, the, the group that did energy policy for the NSC, that is deeply necessary now. Uh, and also uh, in terms of international economics, so I'd say more broadly about the government, the two agencies I'd most like to get after would be DOE and Commerce, both of whom have massive capabilities and authorities that are not currently being deployed, both of whom would be frontline agencies against China. Uh, and so figuring out how, how we do that, uh, and I've had a lot of interesting discussions with Senator Cruz, who's now the ranking member on the, member on the Commerce Committee, about what, what that would look like, uh, being both mindful of our free market principles and our desire to preserve those, but you know, the economic might of the United States is maybe our most powerful right. weapon at this point. So if China is weaponizing it, do we have to? Yeah. Because that'll be the question. Brendan, you juxtapose trying to stand athwart the growth of the bureaucracy yelling stop as a project <laughs> versus trying to unravel and sort of maybe reweave parts of the bureaucracy, uh, a take on, obviously the latter seems harder than the former, yeah. but uh, a take on comparing and contrasting the two. That's tough. I mean, I, I will say when I, when I worked in the intelligence community, it was always interesting to see people who, who, who presumed that there was always going to be like a next mission for these resources. Mm -hmm. So even while, while we were in the midst of, you know, fighting Afghanistan, of course, we had, we had Libya and Syria, and then like West Africa was a thing. And there was always this assumption there was going to be like a next mission, that there was never like an end. So I would hope that if there is a different mindset as to what the purpose of American foreign policy is, that that would have some sort of impact right. on, this, on this almost inevitable sense there's always there's going to be mission creep somewhere so uh, it'll be interesting to see you know uh, in the years ahead if there if it changes at all due to either hopefully some sort of personnel changes or changes in material conditions where they where it forces the government to, to make some hard choices that's great let me um throw it open to the audience here to throw some hopefully metaphorical grenades on today <laughs> up here um so i will call their microphones somewhere floating around um back there uh, and I will call on you and if you can wait for the mic, there we go. Sorry, I uh, buffaloed the, uh, the tech folks with the 
there's uh, someone down here. We'll take, all right, they called an audible. We'll go right down there and then down to the front, uh, one-two punch here. Go ahead, sir. Uh, I am old enough to have been a student at the Foreign Service School at Georgetown University in 1971 when the Senate for an entire week was wrapped up in the debate that you've just been reviewing. At that time, the Mansfield Amendment proposed that U.S. troop commitments to Europe be cut in half. It was overwhelmingly defeated, but I was wondering if my interpretation of the dominant argument against it still applies today. I have not heard it, but having listened to that debate for a week with Senator Fulbright, Senator Nelson, and all those people whose names are lost to history, was that um, if the United States reduced its troop commitment to Europe, um, Europe would turn neutral. It would become a giant neutral zone because Europeans, if faced with the choice of cutting back social benefits and six weeks of vacation and free med health care and free education or increasing their defense spending, would say, we'll go neutral and keep the defense spending low and keep those benefits. I mean, that was my interpretation of the dominant theme, that Europe would become neutral because they need the United States military to protect them, and if we don't, they'll, you know, we'll have a big neutral zone. So I, I don't know if that argument applies today or not, but I'd be interested to see if it survived. It was dominant in 1971. Right. Thank you. Th thank you for that question, and let's also take the one from the gentleman down here in the front, and we'll take uh, the Mansfield Amendment debates, and are they still live today? And this question. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. Um, so uh, Putin finally gets his act together, breaks out of his corner, uh, moves along the coast, uh, succeeds uh, in taking Odessa after a horrible battle. And then there's 100,000 troops in Transdenister. And by the end of the year, Moldova is toast. People who believe as you do allow for that possibility, and it sickens me that I have to vote Democrat to make absolutely certain that that scenario never happens. What in God's name has happened to the domino theory in the Republican well, Party. Reality has happened to the domino theory, I would say. Um, you know, as goes Moldova, so goes Europe, uh, I think is not an argument that, that many people are making. Uh, the PMR has been a festering wound there for Kishinev for a long time. But I think it's important to start with the U.S. national interest in Europe and then build out from there. We entered World War I, we entered World War II, and we fought the Cold War, to some of our tastes, a little too aggressively for a little too long, to prevent a country from dominating Europe, from becoming a regional hegemon in Europe. And the problem that many of us have with the administration's policy in Ukraine and beyond is that it fails to start from that premise. If Russia were to dominate Europe, it would need to take a shot at Poland, to take a shot at Germany. It's already had a residual leftover Soviet army in the PMR in Moldova since the end of the Cold War. So my attitude is if we're clear about what the U.S. interest in Europe is and then build the policy out from there, stopping Russia from becoming a regional hegemon in Europe is not difficult. Russia, I mean, when I talk to Polish military officers, they're very anxious about what's going on in Ukraine on the one hand, and on the other hand, they would really love for these Russian soldiers to try to stretch their supply lines three or 400 miles longer so that they could get a shot 
at them. This is not uh, the Soviet army. So that, that's my response to this idea that, uh, you know, uh, as goes Moldova, so well, goes Well, just Europe. sort of piggybacking onto that, I mean, I am not in disagreement with you. I do not, as I said, I thought pretty clearly, I'm not in favor of a Putin victory. I would like to counter it. What I can't do is from a think tank with, I don't have a magic ball, I don't have, a, you know, a, a magic wand or a crystal ball or anything like that. And I can only make the pra policy recommendations I think are practical. And I cannot force this president to do what I might have chosen to do in the summer of, of 21 or 22, rather, uh, you know, and said, okay, this isn't a three-day war. You know, the, there is an opportunity here to beat him back. Okay, get, get the major NATO allies in a room and say, who has what? And how are we going to wrap this thing up? Nothing like that ever happened. There was no case made for that to happen. And when we look at the supplemental that the president is still flogging for $60 billion additional dollars for Ukraine, the amount of it that's for military assistance is, is not persuasive to me. And you add on to that the $9 billion in humanitarian assistance, which is an additional tranche in that, in that supplemental. You know, what, what is that? Why are we doing that? And so I don't know that voting Democrat is going to get you where you want to go on this, on this particular issue, uh, because I don't think this administration has any intention of winning this war. I'm not willing to die for Moldova. <laughs> I risked my life once for a mission that was ill-defined and poorly executed, and I'm not willing to do it again, nor, nor am I willing to risk the lives of American soldiers to do it again. And so I think we need to be far more realistic as to, as to what our goals in Europe are. And I think we also need to be far more clear-minded of what Putin is really giving up right now in Ukraine. I, you know, I, on the one hand, we're told constantly that he's just he's like he's like one second away from getting his act together and marching into the sea, and the other that he's just bleeding himself, drowning in, in, in the blood of, of Ukrainians. So which is it? Well, and uh, <laughs> so no. To to the Mansfield point, mm -hmm. I think you know that is. The, the fact that Europe is no longer like a single sort of monolithic object, or not that it ever necessarily was, but I think... Who do I call when yeah. I call you? Sure, right. Uh, but I think, you know, if you look at the political changes that have happened in Italy, for example, you mentioned Poland, uh, you know, very strong ally, you know, Estonia hitting whatever they did, three and a half percent of GDP for defense. You know, there, there are points of light of countries that are recognizing uh, recognizing the scale of the threat and their responsibility to, to counter uh, a threat that is in Europe. Uh, the problem is, is that your two biggest EU economies at this point, Germany and France, are not there. And the Germans have now had going on 10 years, it's over nine years since Wales, since they pledged to get to 2%, and they made some noises earlier or uh, last year that were semi-encouraging, and then they reneged on it and said, oh, we can't possibly do it. Like, sure you can. Uh, and so, and who knows where the French are on all of this, but it's, you know, the, it, I think we shouldn't see it as a monolith. I think there are countries that, that would belie that argument about Europe, uh, and that's where I would put my focus. Yeah, I mean, we, and I will just, you know, let me, we had the French ambassador here and I guess the end of 2021, so I have to speak up for the French. Um, you know, the French have been trying to lead this debate in their own 
idiosyncratic way um, since de Gaulle, right? I mean, the, you know, de Gaulle left the NATO high command, um, left, you know, the, the, developed their own nuclear deterrent, etc. cetera. Um, you had president uh, of France saying that NATO was brain dead, uh, talking about strategic autonomy, which my understanding is he sort of got swatted down because if you're autonomous... That means you're like independent of the United States. We didn't like that. But this idea of an incipient European leadership on European security um, is very, uh, has more currency probably in France than in any of the other major economies. I think the Brits have been slowly, grudgingly moving in that direction. Um, but I think the French have been, you know, at, at, at least flirting with this idea of leadership. And just on the, the, the Mansfield Amendment point and the enduring debate about if we don't defend Europe, no one will defend Europe because Europe can't or won't defend Europe. I think that as somebody who wrote a paper about this, there's a real trade-off, right? Americans like reassuring our allies. We like telling our allies that we will be there uh, come what may, et cetera, et cetera. But the downside of reassuring your allies is that they may be reassured. If you reassure your allies that you will do what's required for their security, what incentive is left for them to take the lead on their own security? Not much, many of us argue. So too much reassurance can be a bad thing if what you're trying to do is to redistribute the burdens of defense. If we want the Europeans to lead on defense, to do more, to spend more on defense, a bit of anxiety, a bit of uncertainty, not being reassured might be a good thing. One more thing on that point. This, this, this history of appeasement and the domino theory, it only holds if you start the story in 1939. Okay? But America got involved in European security before that. It's called World War I. And American power has, has continually tipped the scales of Europe's security arrangements. So the longer that we stay there, as Justin says, applying these, these assurances, the, the longer the Western European powers will have incentives to, to, to not do it. And so how long must this go on? I mean, I think this is a question that must be broached. And the answer can't be forever because, you know, math is a problem. Economics exists, right. and at some point, we're going to spend ourselves in, into oblivion, and we're going to ask another generation of Americans to go over there and fight, and I'm not doing it. So. I'm, I'm obliged to take a question here from online from my former professor. Uh, don't blame him for any of my opinions. John Schusler um, from Texas A&M, who asks, where is the overlap between nationalism and restraint? Are nationalists reliable restrainers? And so now we have the funny epistemological problem of defining nationalism and defining, or ontological rather, restraint. Um, and that's, it's certainly true that there has been uh, a growth of nationalism, and of, of, of explicit express nationalism. And I, I think you can make the case that George W. Bush talking about um, making the world not just safer but better, there, there was an ele a nationalist element there that the United States as this principal actor would kind of remake the world in our image. But the version of nationalism that's incipient today is kind of, you know, as we get too deeply involved in various parts of the world, we might not make the world in our image, but the world might remake America in its image. So do you have a sense on where, and again, with the problem of defining nationalism and defining restraint, nationalism plays in the current uh, conservative foreign policy debate? How does that man? I mean, I think the immigration story is yeah. quite clear, um, but maybe on the foreign policy, the security policy uh, aspect. I, I, what was in my mind was was immigration. Mm -hmm. You know, for mm -hmm. for that reason, and and you know the way that issue, you know, 
a little bit like energy is now becoming central to any national security policy. You know, you, you, you have to deal with it. And, you know, as it's now sort of routine to say, we are all the children of immigrants. You know, that it's not that, and, and also, you know, to get to the China issue real quick, you know, they've got a demographic problem they can't solve. Right. They're going to lose half their population by the end of this century, right. and because they did it to themselves. Uh, so, sorry, uh, but <laughs> truth hurts. Yeah, and there is not a, a population that's clamoring to get in and go live there. So, you know, that's you know, in a way, we have a waiting game on our hands here, which is interesting for the restraint crowd. You know, what you really want to do is avoid a conflict over the course of the next decade. Right. Then you're going to have massive advantages. Right if you can do it in a way that we haven't spent ourselves into oblivion in the, in the meantime. So, you know, the, but for, for immigration to be effective, it has to be orderly and legal. And the approach that's been taking for the last three years has been anything but. And the fact that you now have it polling at 75% of Americans are very or at least somewhat concerned about what's happening in terms of immigration, I think... You know that's that's where kind of the nationalism is yep. is going to come in into play. That that if if this is going to happen, we would like to have it happen in a certain process. Right. Take on nationalism, identity politics, yeah, right. kind of through well, line. Looking to the past, it's interesting to see that because you know the meaning of a conservative nationalism and foreign policy can flip very quickly. Right. Right. Because if you go, if you look at say uh, the old guard, the old guard of the Republican Party, which was the northern wing of the Republican Party were unilateralist in their foreign policy. They wanted to enter World War I. They wanted uh, you know, to, 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 spread the, to spread American economics throughout Latin America and parts of, um, parts, parts of the Pacific. But that was muted very quickly by, by the Great War. And then there was a kind of synthesis in the, in the, in the interwar period. That there was going to be economics and, and arms control and, and the Pacific and, and the, well, we're going to stay away from Europe. But looking into World War II, the, uh, the, once the old right takes, takes its shape, there was this more restrained version of nationalism that American identity, uh, while it is universalist in the sense that people can assimilate to it, it's, it's, it's rooted in institutions, it's rooted in, in, in history. And even that, that very idea has become controversial. Right. Um, and so how do you, how do you have, have restraint in a world in which, it, it's, uh, in which foreign policy on both sides of the aisle is increasingly defined? By the free flow of, of you know labor and capital, um, that's a question that's that's still open. Great. Let's go to another question from the audience here. All right, I saw is that Kelly Vallejos? Kelly Vallejos, good to see you, uh, Ben. Thanks, Justin. Uh, Kelly Vallejos, uh, editor of Responsible Statecraft at the Quincy Institute. Um, I'm going to throw this out there. Um, I would like to know what the future of JOP foreign policy looks like in respect to Israel-Gaza and the land war erupting there, which obviously is threatening to become a more uh, a broader Middle East conflict. Um, I understand the restraint impulses of conservatives vis-a-vis um, -vis Trump since 2016, but the America First overlay, what does that look like in a Republican Congress a possible Republican administration. We do have some conservatives who are out there talking about American interests, saying that Biden's strategy as it exists now does not benefit American interests. We have Tucker Carlson out there saying just that. We have um, 
Colonel Doug McGregor, who is a conservative out there saying that, realists like John Mearsheimer, do you see that having any purchase with Republicans moving forward? So there's maybe a couple things to pull out there. Mm -hmm. Escalatory, potential, U.S.-Israel relations generally. Um, and yeah, maybe those are the best two, I think. To, and, and, and you are, I mean, I think Kelly, you know, obliquely points this out. There's this, um, I'm unfortunately online enough to know that there's a Tucker Carlson, Ben Shapiro thing happening oh, about uh, U.S.-Israel relations. But it is, there is again, and again, for, you know, a nerd like me who likes debates, even where I have a dog in the fight, Debate, I like debates. I mean, I think they reveal, they illuminate uh, the various things that we're having. But um, is there any uh, chance of sort of policy implications of these debates? Do these debates sort of bloom into, and I think the escalatory potential here uh, is not for nothing, but then maybe to, sorry, step on Kelly's question a third time, the Iran issue is looming out there as well. So you have, you know, U.S.-Israel relations, the potential for escalation to suck the United States in horizontally or vertically, vis-a-vis um, -vis another power, and then U.S.-Iran relations seem to me, by my recollection, to be there seems to be a pretty strong consensus among the GOP on Ira Ira the discrete issue of Iran generally. So uh, maybe those are three useful, hopefully, Kelly, ways of uh, pushing that question. Yeah, thanks, thanks for the question, Kelly. I think, you know, as, as I, I tangled with this space a fair amount, I think, you know, historically the United States has been engaged in the Middle East for one reason. It's energy, and we have, over the years, needed that energy. That relationship is now radically different. Uh, and you know, you look at at the Carter Doctrine from 1980, and you know, this kind of declaration that the United States will guarantee the free flow of energy out of the Gulf. You know, and and when we came in in 2016, the preserving the open Strait of Hormuz remained a pillar of our Middle East policy. That, that was an imperative. And I came along and said, well, you know, I might not want to close it down, but is it really an imperative at this point for the United States in 2017, 2018 timeframe to keep that open? I mean, you could argue it would be good for business. And so that relationship changes fundamentally when the United States is one of the big three energy producers with the Russians and the Saudis. And if I'm asked who I want to partner with in that group, you know, that's a pretty easy answer to give. So there are reasons to be engaged. If you want the, you know, these two huge producers to be talking to each other, we have very radically different uh, systems, obviously, but, but you can coordinate. We did it on the Iran sanctions. Uh, so, so it's, you know, the reasons we would be engaged in the Middle East are now different. But, you know, as we look at what's happening now, by far and away the most dangerous part of it is the Houthi activity out of Yemen into the Red Sea because of what goes through the Red Sea. And I don't know when we see this start to, S-E-E, -E, this start to manifest itself, these ships having to take the long road around uh, Africa but if you remember back to the, uh, what was it, the ever given, the, the container ship that went sideways in the Suez by accident, uh, that snarled things for months. Yep. So, so this, is, you know, this is going to be a problem for us here at home, and it's going to be even more immediately a problem for our European friends. Uh, so, so I think for these reasons, we need to be engaged in it. My concern is but the approach that we're taking right now, which is completely defensive by not using a baseball analogy by not throwing a brushback pitch, this is just going to keep happening. 
And you know, they're, fortunately, the Houthi aren't terribly good shots, but eventually they're going to get lucky. Nobody over there seems to be a very good shot. Thank, Thank God. God. Um, it really does. It's a quite striking yeah. uh, thing. And I think of note here, too, maybe um, General McKenzie, the former head of CENTCOM, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal in the last week or two. He's a very, uh, as you would expect of a former CENTCOM commander, uh, doesn't have a real great sense of, doesn't have a real great affinity for Iran. Uh, it kind of goes with the territory there. But he had a paragraph in that piece that basically said, you know, if you don't want to have a very forward-leaning anti-Iran policy in the Middle East, then just leave. I mean, you know, and, and I think that was a weird thing that was different than had that piece run 15 years ago in the Wall Street Journal, it would have just been full steam ahead, whereas that had a paragraph that said, if you don't want to do this, then don't dot our people throughout the region to be shot at to no good end. And I thought that was, you know, I'm looking for small victories for myself. And that was that little paragraph was a small victory. <laughs> Brennan thought on Middle East, U.S.-Israel, U.S.-Iran. Do I want to scuttle my career this <laughs> Um, I always say this, though. Go I mean, go for it. Why not? You know, pre-cancel myself. Um, you know, I think you know, conservative attitudes on on Israel again are again are not set in stone. I mean, there there was an evolution here that I mean, right. uh, Taft was an er, er, early supporter of the state of Israel, but there had been long strains of you know anti-Zionism or criticisms of U.S.-Israeli relations that had existed in the American right all throughout the 1970s, and it wasn't really until the late 60s when France ceased to be Israel's primary um, supplier of arms that the United States and Israel really sort of, um, you know, uh, threaded itself together. So I mean, it, there is, there is a, there is a, it's possible to have some more nuanced critiques right. um, of, uh, of uh, American-Israeli relations from a conservative standpoint, but whew, that is, that is going to be the toughest, yeah, the, the, for sure. the toughest thing to crack. But I, I think, yes, pulling, you know, pulling American troops out of Syria and, and out of Iraq ought to be the easiest way to ease, ease tensions or right. Or to at least uh, retract. So I think I think do we have a consensus on the panel that if we're talking about conservative consensus, um, you know, Europe and Asia are a little easier, and the Middle East, as you know, in this narrow sense and in a broader sense, is quite a thorny problem. Well, the problem though, it then becomes this fact: you can pivot away from it; it's not going to pivot away from you. Uh, and the, you know that 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 we do keep seem to be pulled back into that, you know, Israel's probably going to be the ongoing gateway for that. Uh, you know, it is also, you know, the sort of liminal space between East and West. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and China is very active there. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's, that then becomes, you know, your, your problem is if you, if you decide you're going to back off of it entirely and not influence you know the energy producers there not engage with Israel. How long is that going to last? Practically, some of us say if somebody has to be trying to run the Middle East, us or China, better them than us, because uh, it has, <laughs> hasn't done a lot for us. Now lately, there's a point. <laughs> let's go back to um, someone here in the meat space with us. There's a gentleman with a Peaky Blinders hat on. Yeah, sorry. I'll take it. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this. My name is Andrew Thornbrook. I'm a national security correspondent for the Epoch Times. Yeah. Uh, if we go back to Ukraine for just a minute, you know, I, we've heard a lot uh, about the contentious history of domino theory, of course, and the, the desire among many to not allow Putin a victory, but that we need to encourage more defense spending in Europe to allow Europe to defend itself. But those debates have largely been absent from the GOP primaries. 
uh, a debate that has much more frequently come up is whether or not a GOP president should actively encourage Ukraine to seek negotiated settlement with Russia. And three of the current contenders have suggested they would do just that. So for getting domino theory, for getting all this, from a strategic standpoint, from a strategic posture standpoint for the United States, how do you see or how would you like to see the next Republican president approaching issues of natural resources, strategic resources in Eastern Europe, such as deep water ports, increased wheat production, nuclear energy facilities. How should the United States, if it's not engaging in these wars or promoting them, uh, contend with the, the shifting resources there and Russia's ability to currently acquire them through aggression? So you had me going into the last part. So you, you, the idea would be that's implicit in the last part of your question is were Russia to Finlandize or otherwise get outsized influence over Ukraine, then there would be wheat? You're saying no, so I misconstrued it. Sure. Right. So, oh, so, so a denouement of the war that doesn't result in Russian victory or Ukrainian victory, but some muddle therein, and what would be the implications for U.S. interests from that? Is that fair? Okay, better anyway. I can take it, but maybe you either. No, Why don't you go Brandon. first? Sure. So I think that – let me just start with the rote denunciation of the administration's entire rhetorical <laughs> approach to the problem. You know, They said early on um, – all of the decisions about military issues, um, military initiatives on the Ukrainians' part, whether or how to engage in diplomacy were up to Ukraine. That's entirely Ukraine's uh, situation, and as the National Security Advisor put it, our job is to support them in that. So that was the way the administration framed the problem publicly. At the same time, early in the war, Kiev asked for inter alia a no-fly zone which would have amounted to the United States shooting down Russian airplanes over Ukraine and thereby entering the war. The administration, wisely in my view, declined to do that um, out of risk of escalation, et cetera, et cetera. So they've been saying all of the initiative on these problems is for Kiev to decide. But in practice, they've been making decisions that strongly suggest that Ukraine's interest is larger in Ukraine than is the U.S. interest in Ukraine, which sounds so banal as to be insulting to utter it in front of a public audience. The idea that the U.S. interest in Ukraine is more limited than Ukrainians' interest in Ukraine is just not something anyone ever would have said five years ago. Uh, but we find ourselves having to express this view in contradistinction to the view of the United States government, um, which seems to imply that it's right um, for the United States to kind of its, outsource its policy on Ukraine to Ukraine. Um, and I think that if it is the case, which it clearly is, that U.S. assistance to Ukraine has purchased um, Ukraine's survival, and it's not to make light of the appalling and heroic sacrifices that Ukrainian soldiers fighting for their country have made. But if U.S. aid has kept Ukraine in the fight, then that purchases the United States not the right to tell Ukraine what to do, but the right to enunciate our interests in Ukraine, which are, again, I think by definition, more limited than Ukraine's interests in Ukraine. Ukraine can then take that information and make decisions where the United States would say we're in for a penny, but we're not in for a pound. 
if you, if you want to take that penny and try to apply it to a very ambitious strategy of regaining interalia Crimea and, you know, uh, throwing Putin into the Hague, then so be it. But I think the math may not work out there. So I don't favor the United States sort of telling Kiev what it has to do. But I favor us enunciating our interest in the conflict, which is by definition limited, so that they can take that information and decide how to use our assistance, which is limited in, in uh, keeping with our interests in the conflict. And I think that the administration has really made a hash of that with this rhetoric that is, you know, world historical. We still have them saying, you know, the future of world order will be decided in Ukraine. The future of democracy in the world will be decided in Ukraine. And it's very fair for the Ukrainians to say, well, if the future of world order is at stake, if the future of democracy in the world is at stake, maybe you should give even more. Maybe you should enter the war. Um, and so I think the administration has had this Janus face of um, overselling rhetorically and underproviding when juxtaposed against the rhetoric that they have uh, enunciated. So that has made me squeamish for going on two years now uh, with respect to their policy. So I think just making clear that our interests are limited, we're in for a penny, but we're not in for a pound, would help Kiev to make judgments that are, again, uh, more aligned with rather than this total support and then the question of teetering on the brink of no support uh, volleying back and forth, which I think is not uh, a model of uh, super coherent policy, but that's my... No, I, I, I think that summed it up pretty nicely, and that's been my issue, you know, for almost two years now, is, is how, how you reconcile the rhetoric with what is actually going on. And if, if the interest in wrapping this up is to do so in, on terms that are favorable to Kiev and, yes, to Washington, I'm not opposed to having this turn out well for us, uh, but but that has never been articulated clearly, right. and that's where I think you're starting to see the fissures uh, crack in, in in the Congress because, you know, it, it is hard to make a compelling case to you know a resident on the border of why we can spend all this money defending Ukraine's borders, but we can't get our own border under control and. You know, we then get lectured that these are two distinct issues. We have to see them separately. I'm like, well, but the voters don't. Right. And so, you know, if they are, as you said, voting the politicians into office who are going to make these decisions, those views are going to be reflected. And I don't think they're irrational. And I think, you know, you had, you know, just on to, to maybe close this on that point, you know, General Milley, I guess it was in the fall over a year ago, fall of 22, I guess it would have been, um, said, boy, the Ukrainians kind of have some wind in their sails. Um, they, they've, they've chewed back much more territory than anyone had reason to expect. And you sure do want to enter into negotiations when you appear to have uh, momentum going, which is, again, almost a kind of banal observation. And he was roundly hooted down by, uh, among others, his boss, um, who said, essentially, in, in no uncertain terms, shut up. Um, and he did shut up, but I think there is now a growing sense that maybe Milley shouldn't have shut up. Maybe Milley was right when he said, take these gains, take this momentum, and say, you know, we're going to keep going otherwise. And instead, you know, the administration continued to urge or, or permit, at the very least, um, maximalist goals. And we saw the last year where a tremendous amount of blood was shed for a trivial amount of territory. And I think that's the real you know, tragedy here, is a failure of the United States to kind of make clear its own perceptions of what's going on um, has allowed understandable 
uh, impulses to, to take root in Kiev. Um, let's go to more questions here in the, in, in the audience. There's a gentleman right here in, the, right in front of a camera. I'm Bill Klein, I'm a retired Army doctor. A couple, of, I'll try to make it quick. I'm curious about parallels between World War II and what's going on in Ukraine now, because there were isolationists before World War II. I'm wondering what if Pearl Harbor had not happened, how World War II would have turned out. We might not have gotten engaged. Second question, unrelated, is I've always been wondering how much of all the money we spend on all our foreign adventures leaves the United States. Certainly, military government salaries don't leave the United States, and our hardware money doesn't leave the United States mostly, but does anybody have any idea what percentage of all these congressional donations to the rest of the world actually leaves the United States? Let's do the historical question and then maybe the, or Victoria? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's a very valid question of what, what might have happened had, had Pearl Harbor not occurred, uh, and I think that you know, that we should be mindful of that uh, as, as, as we approach the U Ukraine problem set. Uh, now, of course, it did happen, and, you know, we can't go back and, and trace an alternative history uh, at this point. We don't know what would have happened in the Congress. We don't know what Roosevelt would have done vis-a-vis uh, -vis the war. So, you know, I think, I think it's something certainly to take into consideration, uh, but I don't know that we can then extrapolate, oh my gosh, you know, absent the, you know, absent a equivalent of Pearl Harbor, you know, Hitler's triumphing. Uh, that, that doesn't, to me, that's not a straight line. Uh, and, and to your second question, those, those numbers exist. Uh, and I think if you just go on the Congressional uh, Research service. service, yeah, CRS, has all of that information. Uh, the one issue I have with the notion that, that Ukraine is this wonderful opportunity for us to modernize all of our stocks while uh, no Americans die, I'm like, well, a whole lot of Ukrainians are dying to right. do what we should do if we're a responsible country anyway. And I, that, to me, is an utterly unpersuasive argument. One of the interesting, let me push you on this, Brennan, to pull from that question was there was a real debate on the old right about whether in, in arguably overcommitting to the, we, we, we defeated Nazi Germany to an extent that we relatively built up the Soviet Union. I mean, this was a very, uh, at the center of the, yeah. the old right. Particularly in East Asia, like, you know, their argument was is that by, you know, March or May of uh, 45, Japan was effectively cordoned off by the Navy they had ceased to be a threat to the United States. Yes, they had a massive army in China, and that this was the time to, to, to negotiate. And we, if we give them up some, some territory, like we should do it. Uh, and that seems like appalling to us, right? Because we constantly think about American war through the context of unconditional surrender. Right. And World War II was abnormal in that sense. Right. We must stop constantly thinking in the, in, in the frame of World War II. Um, because, you know, it, again, counterfactuals are difficult. We don't know what would happen. But ha had the United States negotiated a, a, you know, a punitive peace of some kind with Japan in 40, in a, you, know, how, you know, how many Japanese lives wouldn't have been burnt to a crisp either through firebombing or, or starved to death? Um, and, yes, that would have been distasteful. You would have had to make a deal with the devil. But, like, it, it's always a trade-off. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, you know, 
Think about World War I. Like, ha- had the United States tried to broker a peace rather than enter the war, might have been a, a whole different scenario uh, that, that unfolded thereafter. And you know, as, as long as we shackle ourselves to, to these hackneyed paradigms of World War II, we're always going to be constantly marching ourselves further into, into escalation. Let me do a, a very short riff on the second part of the question because I think it's important. Um, and this is the, the, to just extend the question a little bit, the question of is defense spending good for the economy? Um, and I've had the misfortune, great misfortune, of having to look into this literature at some length. Um, the literature is a muddle. Um, there are some suggestions that in certain contexts, in certain countries, there's a kind of multiplier effect that it does have, you know, if the government spends a dollar on defense spending, it gets a dollar and six cents of economic benefit from it, and therefore it is. There's literature that says, in most cases, that doesn't happen. Um, and I think that as we have these discussions, um, it shouldn't be r- relative to economic growth, it should be relative in the end, to the welfare of Americans, not welfare in the sense of welfare programs, but the well-being of Americans. Um, Or would that money have better be left in the private sector? Would it have better be spent on something else? And so I think that part of the problem there is that the literature, excuse me, misconstrues the nature of the problem. It's not about economic growth. It's about welfare. Um, But I I, I wanted to not miss the opportunity to complain about the uh, 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 in – not incoherence, but it's a real model to literature on the effective defense spending on, on, on economic growth. Um, I see someone behind a light back there. Yes, right behind. Oh, it's Reed Smith. Hey, Reed Smith. All my cronies are showing up today. <laughs> How can you see? Hi, uh, Reed Smith with Stand Together. Um, a lot of today's conservatives fashion themselves constitutional literalists, except when it comes to executive war making, where they favor a very broad remit for the commander in chief. I I think that's out of whack with kind of historical examples, witness, I don't know, Senators Taft or Bora. Um, Can we talk a little bit about that evolution perhaps and just get your thoughts on the the kind of uh, capacious commander in chief? I remember when Barack Obama had, uh, on the campaign trail, really kind of uh, civil libertarian law professor answers to uh, the war powers that the president held. And then after having taken office, boy, it really works a number on you. Um, and it turns out your opinions Article on those two, things change. So, right. So is that, I wonder if that may be a, a general uh, problem between candidates and incumbents, but do you have a sense of the conservative, capital C or lower? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very active discussion in, particularly on the House side, uh, you know, is, is, that focuses on the Syria issue, you know, is, is how many years are we going to have this troop contingency there without an AUMF that actually applies to it? And I think that's the problem that, you know, that the 2001 AUMF, you know, voted on right after 9-11. I don't think we can be too harsh on them. That was a very difficult time. Uh, and they needed to do something and something was done. But the problem is that flawed vehicle has now become the foundation for an entire architecture of authorities uh, that that you know, some some legitimate some you might question but it's all just kind of grown on this on this foundation that is in and of itself problematic for right now because it, it you know it doesn't give us authority to take action against the Iranians for example 
uh, and you know, is that something we want? So I'm kind of in the repeal and replace camp on the 01 AUMF, but I think more broadly, you know, this, this isn't well understood, and my personal experience with it was uh, the Syrian uh, chemical attack under Obama, the red, infamous red line, which I think was the summer of 13, but it might have been 14. Uh, and so, you know, th this happens. The president has declared the red line. The red line is crossed. And then we have a furious debate about what the Congress is going to do. And, you know, the, the line that Obama continues to use very specifically about Senator Cruz is he, he stopped us. He wouldn't give us any authority. And what Cruz's point was, was, okay, this bad thing has happened. You know, the line has crossed. You made the line. I don't want to do a pinpoint strike. I think that's the word. Kerry used at the time, or something incredibly small. You know, if, if you're going to restore the credibility of the President of the United States, do not use the armed services as a messaging device. You know, use them, but then but apply to us with a AUMF. Tell us what you want to do. And I remember, because we were on armed services at the time, they actually sent over something saying, tell us what you'll authorize. I'm like, I can't do that. You know, you, you need to tell us what you want to do. Uh, and, and then we'll tell you if we're going to authorize it or not. But that's the kind of loop you can get into in, in, this, in this situation. And, and subsequently, it has been easier to just say, oh, I have broad Article II authority, so I'm not going mm -hmm. to mess with that pesky Congress. So I think that that's a, a really, really interesting issue that we do need to work on uh, so that we can take action when we have to, and we're, but there is congressional engagement on it. This is one of those things I'm the most pessimistic on because, you know, shades of the new right are, are openly embracing a kind of Caesarism, whereas, you know, the, as whereas the old right was, was very much about the legislature. And they were the speed bump uh, in Congress as, you know, as a, as a, as a you know, liberal Republican and a, and a conservative body willfully gave away its congressional authorities time and time and time and time again. And then they disappeared from the scene in Congress in the mid-'70s, right at the moment in which Americans were starting to, to, to talk about presidential power. And so that's going to be the hardest thing to unspool, because I think Americans, frankly, they, they want a pseudo-dictator. Like they want executive order. They want action. So it's going to take, in my opinion, a fundamental shift of what we expect of government. And it's going to take a Congress that wants to, oh, I don't know, do congressional things. Right. Like you truly... Legislate. <laughs> legislate or, or not legislate or just, right. you know, take its power back. Mm -hmm. And we're so, I mean, we're so, we're so blinkered. I mean, there's, it's really unfortunate because now, you know, the foreign policy question has become so partisan. Whereas, you know, a century ago it wasn't. You had Democrats opposing Wilson. You had Republicans opposing, uh, you know, TR and, and, and McKinley. So trying to get some kind of you know, congressional oversight, that's, to me, that's, that's a pretty tall order. Right. In the interest of fighting on the dais, you can put me down as a repeal and don't, don't replace on the, uh, on the 2001. Second I don't, I don't worry much about the alacrity <laughs> of war-making in the United States, absent those authorities. Let's take, I'm going to go to this at the end, but there, I see Dan McCarthy down there. Hi, Dan. This is, I know everybody in the audience apparently today. I don't know. We must be in your house. I'm telling you. I don't know. It never happens like this. Thanks, Justin. So I'm uh, Daniel McCarthy from Modern Age. And uh, since my name is McCarthy, I think I'll name names. And the name I want to bring up is Victoria Newland. We talked about personnel being policy, and it seems like there's this bad penny, Miss Newland, Mrs. Newland, who, who crops up uh, whenever we have a foreign policy crisis 
uh, under the George W. Bush administration, under the Obama administration. She seems to have a, uh, a way of hanging around despite changes in Republican or Democratic administrations. Um, so it will be interesting in hearing about the kind of power and influence that someone like that wields and how that person is able to uh, maintain influence in government. Um, I've, I've named names, but obviously there are other folks who might be uh, in similar positions as well. So you can either comment particularly on Victoria Newland or perhaps just on other sort of figures who might be seen as being very important within what many people would call the deep state. Yeah. Anybody want to? Well, this, I mean, I was, I was there, so yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it, it, it is a problem, and particularly for Republicans coming in the way Trump did without a, you know, a terribly orderly transition and without a deep stable or bench of folks cleared, ready to go in, you know, for somebody like Newland, I mean, she has a very broad bipartisan base here in Washington, and that is very, very powerful. So she has folks from both sides, you know, calling in successive uh, administrations that she should be retained. And there is an argument that people who have been working on these, pro these problems know them yeah. intimately and therefore will add value. I think we found... You know, largely that was not the case. Uh, that there was not a tremendous amount of value added on a number of different topics. And you know, it, she is far from the only one, though. I mean, I, it would be wrong to, to single her out as you know, they, if we just eradicated right. her. That right. would eradicate the problem. <laughs> uh, but and I am not calling for her eradication right. in any way. Right. Uh, but I think, I think that is that is the challenge to the next conservative president is identifying the folks who actually will help you uh and 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 removing the ones uh that that will not and it doesn't even necessarily mean firing them it means they go back to their home agency they don't get the cushy promotion whatever it is uh but you know that and that's again something schedule f will help you with is 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 making that less of a, you know, sort of perpetual problem. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll make the more general. I probably disagree with Victoria Newland on whether today is Monday, so it's not hugely worth, you know, getting into, uh, you know, proxy fight with her here. But I do think the question, where is accountability in U.S. foreign policy is a good one. We could ask the Secretary of Defense. How, well, <laughs> we can't ask him now. Um, <laughs> we, how badly do you have to screw up to be written out of town on a rail? I mean, that's a maybe more happy hour way of putting things. Um, and so I do think that it's in part a function of the extent to which the United States is secure, right? If somebody screwed up very badly and we lost a chunk of Arizona, I like to think that there would be consequences for that. Um, but I, you know, we've screwed up pretty badly over the last, over my professional career, which started in 2003. And most of the people who, you know, were, were uh, had their fingerprints all over those disasters um, just left the Republican Party and became Democrats. I don't know. You know, I don't know if that's if that's enough of a uh, 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 purge to, to, to meet the bill. But, you know, if you look at somebody, uh, well, I don't want to name names. You know who the people I'm talking about are. Um, but I do think it's a real problem for us, right, that, there, that all of this stuff goes on and we can go down the laundry list of them. Who paid for the Libya uh, escapades? Um, the Libyans, uh, first and foremost, people who were sold in open-air slave markets after we regime changed Gaddafi, who was a really bad guy, and replaced him with whatever there are, 10 governments in Libya now. 
Um, and I just think that we Americans get really hopped up on something. It's very easy to get us energized and exercised, and then we lose attention. And so I would just send that, you know, not only as a lament about the lack of accountability in the foreign policy community, but also as a warning to aspiring foreign governments or the next Ahmed Chalabi or whatever. It's easy to get our attention, but it's hard to keep it. And if you get it and we go in there and break China, we leave a lot of times, and you might be sweeping up the China after we do that. And the same people who broke the China will go break the China somewhere else in five or 10 years. So I think that's both a lament for those of us who work here that you, know, you can keep score until you're blue in the face and the players just stay on the ice and keep playing, um, but also a, a warning to the world that, again, getting America's attention can be easy, but keeping it uh, can be hard. And if you can't keep it, a lot of uh, ruin can happen. Um, we have time for one more from the audience, and I want it to be somebody awesome. So I feel like the next person who raises his or her hand is going to be awesome. You have no awesome people here? Um, there he yeah. is, sir, right down there in the front. One thing, yeah, with regard to foreign policy that I see all of you guys are, uh, I don't think missing, but intentionally not paying attention, is that since World War II, except a short time during Eisenhower and Nixon, Nixon uh, the rest during most of the time, foreign policy of this country has been in the control of Israeli lobby, very openly, even up to now. The cabinet, 14 of, seven of 14 are, you know, let's, so I don't let's, want to let's go to. I think we've got the gist of the question is back to sort of U.S.-Israel relationship and, and how that has kind of shaped U.S. policy, right? How that That's exactly sure. what, uh, it, it has not been U.S. policy, it has been interest of Israel, yeah. not interest of the United States, so, so not interest of the American people. I think we've got the question. Let me, let me take it and broaden it, because I've raised a, a similar scenario in the context of Ukraine where, you know, I don't want to uh, say that there's, that Israel has no influence in the United States. It clearly does. But we've done something weird and similar with Ukraine, right? We, we've failed to say we're this country in the Western Hemisphere, the northern part of the Western Hemisphere. We're more or less an insular maritime power. We don't really fear conquest from the Canadians or the Mexicans. That's a good thing. Um, and we have interests in Ukraine and interests in Israel and interests in China and interests in, uh, uh, you know, Nigeria or wherever. But we failed to start with a clear delineation of those interests. It's almost like starting the movie in the middle. And we've been involved in the Ukraine war. And therefore, how do we advance? How do we better our position vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine war? There's a U.S.-Israel relationship that's extremely close. Um, in many cases, Speaking for myself here, I think we do things that are foolhardy from an American point of view out of a failure to sort of separate the U.S. interests from the interests of Kiev, the interests of Tel Aviv, the interests of wherever. So maybe a, a generalization from a question about the Israel lobby, which I think you know could have its own policy forum or policy book that's been written about it, <laughs> um, 
is to say, what about this? Like, to get back to the nationalist point, right? Um, we should start with, we're proud Americans, we're from a certain place, um, we have certain interests, and those overlap or not in ways with Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, we're having a debate about um, brokering the normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, not a great government, not nice guys, um, to put, again, uh, modest claims department. So what about that? A, a, a thoroughgoing nationalist ought to be able to say, you know, and I remember when America First launched, and I, as a guy who has restrainty foreign policy views and uh, almost thinks it's kind of banal to say America First, when we make trade policy or nominate a Supreme Court justice or uh, do this or that or don't do this or that on immigration, every legislator in their own mind is putting America first? We don't say, well, this kind of will suck for us, but it'll be good for the WTO, or it'll be good for the, I mean. There's more it, of that than you think. Well, but I think it is, but you know, Ilhan Omar and uh, Paul Gosar, in their own witchy and inscrutable ways, believe that what they're doing is in the interest of their own country. So to me, the, the perplexing thing about nationalism in US foreign policy has been that failure to start with the kind of chesty, aggressive, substance of we're our own thing and these are where our interests are, but whether it's Kiev or wherever, to go down the road of fusing ourselves with uh, the Iraqi National Congress or, or whomever. And that's the perplexing thing that I think is more generalizable. Yeah, I, I would just very quickly say I think we probably would disagree very strongly, not you and I, uh, the questioner and I, on, on the value of the U.S.-Israel alliance, which I, I think is extremely valuable for a whole host of reasons, but I agree that's not being clearly articulated mm -hmm. and in a dispassionate, non-moralizing way. And I think you know, making that case for why this partnership is important, what we've invested in it, what we've gotten out of it, you know, where our interests align would be helpful and healthy for both the United States and Israel. And I think going into, you know, uh, 2026, which is when, if we decide we want to do another memorandum of understanding with them mm -hmm. uh, for another another 10 years, I think we need to go into those negotiations with that context. That that this is this is what this arrangement, if we decide to do it, is going to achieve. And I think that also is critical this year for dealing with Taiwan. Uh, that that that's going to be the potentially next flashpoint of some of some brilliance. And if we don't, if we back into it the way we backed into Ukraine, we could do the same right. thing again. Right. And so making clear that we can't want it more than Taiwan does, what we're willing to do, what we expect of them in terms of benchmarks for them to meet, and then what we expect partners and allies to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, but I think working on that now is critical. Brandon, any coda here? I mean, you know, America First obviously has a lot of baggage, not just with the war, but it's, <laughs> it's a phrase that, that had been used by people who had much more odious yeah. views than, sure. than, than, say, like the Tafties. And I think part of this is because there are, there are actors in, in this town who want, that, who want that to be the only narrative of that phrase. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want you to know that there were, that, you know, Oswald Garrison of Lard, who was one of the co-founders of the, of the NAACP, was an active member of America First. They don't want you to know that there were people in the America First community who were progressives, who had a progressive view on 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 a whole uh, litany of topics. And since World War II, the whole notion of particularism is, is is loaded, right? Blood and soil. We don't want to think of ourselves in that way. So we think of ourselves as universalists to the max. 
but we've 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 hit a, a, a brick wall with that uh, with that ideology. We tried to make the Middle East in our image, and that failed catastrophically. So we're at a point in which there's this tension, right? We don't we don't we 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 want to think of our values as being universally exportable, but we also want to recognize that. That's what come at a, at a significant cost. Great. Well, with that, let me thank uh, the panelists for joining us here today. Let me thank the audience uh, for attending and for those watching online or on C-SPAN. And please join us upstairs for sandwiches and Cokes. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Appreciate your coming. Well done.